Well, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, imagine you are in the doctor's office and you have been experiencing some pain over the past number of weeks. And so you went in for some tests and you're sitting down with the doctor. He's, he or she is bringing in the test results and the doctor delivers tragic news to you. You have cancer. Some of you have sat in the room with a loved one or maybe you have a loved one that you've You've known they've had that situation, or maybe you've been that person in the room and had that news delivered directly to you, and a doctor's visit like that can be a very sobering experience. What needs to happen when someone is diagnosed with cancer? When someone has cancer, what needs to happen? Well, I think there's probably a couple things. Number one, you got to understand the problem. What stage of cancer are you in? How serious is this cancer? Is it malignant? If it is, it could kill you. It could grow and metastasize, and you need to get rid of it. But first, you need to understand what the problem is, what's going on. Second, you must follow the doctor's solution. Maybe it needs to be cut out. Maybe you need radiation or chemotherapy, and it's probably going to be painful. It's probably not what you want to do, but you know you must do it because you want to go into remission. You want to get rid of the cancer, and so you follow the doctor's solution. And then you, you trust the reasons for the treatment. Right? Some type of treatment might cause you to lose your hair. If you're me, I guess it doesn't matter, but for most people it does. Some treatments might mean you lose parts of your body. Most promise some type of pain, but, but the doctor has this solution because they want you to get rid of the cancer, right? And they, the, their treatment has a purpose. It has an objective. And so, so you're going to trust the reason the doctor is doing what he's doing. And then fourth, you're going to reject that which is going to harm you. Maybe you can't eat certain foods or, or do certain things, but you're willing to do that or not do those things because, Lord willing, Lord willing you want to go into remission and be cancer-free. Being diagnosed with cancer is a very serious thing. Cancer is something we take very seriously, don't we? Well, the local church is described as a body, the body of Christ. And the body of Christ, a local church like ours, like Lighthouse, is supposed to be a healthy church, to be a, a church that's pure and holy. Yet there's a cancer that can infect the church and it can destroy us, and it's the cancer of sin. It's the cancer of members in the church who are unrepentant about their sin, and they, they continue to live a sinful life with no repentance. In our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul calls upon the church to take sin seriously and to pursue purity in our own personal lives, but also in the corporate body of the church. And I think the point of this entire chapter here of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I think the point is to call church members to pursue purity because Christ died on the cross as our sacrifice to purify his church. We as a church are called to pursue purity because that's why Christ came. That's why he lived. That's why he died 
was to purify his church. In fact, notice the key verse in chapter 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The leaven there represents sin. The new lump represents the church. And he's saying that we need to cleanse out the sin and those who continue in sin because we are a new lump. And that leaven can infect the church and it can affect the purity of the church. And notice he says that you are unleavened. You are pure. You're made holy by Christ. How? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so Paul taught that Christ died as the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who takes away our sins to purify his church, to make us holy. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might purify her. And because Christ died to purify his church, we as a church must pursue purity. It must be one of our highest priorities as a church. Christ cares about the purity of his church. In fact, before we go into this text, look back in chapter 1. Look back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, verse 2, the Bible says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, so to this local church in this city called Corinth, so this is like a local church like ours, like Lighthouse Bible Church, to those sanctified, in other words, to those made holy, to those purified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called to be holy ones, called to be pure ones. And notice he says, together, it's not individual, it's not just by yourself, we're called to be holy together as a church. Go to 1 Corinthians 3.17. Notice this again, the church is called the holy temple, 1 Corinthians 3.17. If anyone destroys God's temple, in other words, if you come against and sin against God's church, that's his temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, the church, are that temple. God's church, his gathered people right now, we are his holy temple. This is like the holy of holies right here. God's presence is with us in the power of his Holy Spirit, and this is a holy place because we are his holy people. Like I said, Dana and I just got back from Israel, and one of the things that struck me when we would go to all these archaeological sites, is how significant purity was for the Old Testament Israelites. I mean, you have all these sites, these, you have these uh, cities, you have these, these um, different uh, religious centers, and you find in these digs, these mikvahs, these ritual purity baths where the, where the people would go down and they'd ritually purify themselves so they could worship. And what's interesting to find out is that they were very, very concerned about purity. In fact, the Old Testament is very concerned about that. We actually went to a place in the desert, where in the wilderness, where they had 
um, a replica of the tabernacle. It was really interesting to actually walk into the courtyard and walk into this replica of the tabernacle. And, and it was interesting to hear this guy describe this as he said a priest would come in and he would offer a sacrifice for sins. And then he would go to the next station and there he would wash himself, which was a recognition that the sacrifice had purified him and he was made pure by God through the blood sacrifice. And then he would walk into the tent, into the holy place. And, and a regular priest couldn't walk into the holy of holies. He could not walk into there. Only the high priest once a year could go into that place, which was God's special place where his presence was. Why? Because God is a holy God. And so purity and holiness were so important. In fact, what's interesting, if you go to Jerusalem, the old city, and you see the Temple Mount, You'll see all these Orthodox Jews that are praying at the Western Wall. You've seen that picture probably. But what's interesting, Orthodox Jews will not go up onto the Temple Mount. And the reason why is because there's no longer a temple. Now there's a Muslim mosque. And they believe that since that Temple Mount is defiled, that they can't go up there. They're not, they're not, it's not pure, so they can't go into the presence of where God's presence once, once was. The point is, they are very, they were very concerned in Old Testament times about purity. Why? Because God was concerned about purity. And 1 Corinthians describes the members of a local church as, as God's holy people. And, and when we're united like this in, in faith and in unity, it's like we are the holy of holies, worshiping, praising God in his presence. In fact, I want you to notice, if you just remember and those verses I just read in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 1 Corinthians 3, 17, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and all those instances, holiness is a present condition for the believers in Christ. We are holy. In fact, look at verse 7. He says, you really are unleavened. We're not trying to attain holiness. Christ has made us holy by his grace, through our faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so because God has made us his holy people, because he's forgiven us of our sins, then therefore we should pursue holiness. We shouldn't indulge in our sin. God is serious about maintaining a holy congregation. He illustrated this in, in Joshua chapter 7. Remember Achan? He lied, he stole, he hid those things he stole under his tent. And Israel experienced pain and death. In fact, in the end, Achan and his family experienced death. Why? Because God takes purity seriously. In the New Testament, God demonstrated how serious he was about the purity of his church with Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they brought a gift and they came individually before the church and they said, look how much we've given, but they were lying. And God struck both of them dead in front of the church. Really was the first example of church discipline. And I'm, I'm thankful God does not do church discipline like this today. But the point is, is that God was showing how serious he is about sin. And we might go, well, wasn't that kind of severe to do that to Achan and to Ananias and Sapphira? Well, the answer is probably we don't really understand how serious God is about purity. That's how serious God is. 
Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to call us to pursue purity in the church. So the question is, how do we as a church pursue purity? And he gives four ways for us to pursue purity in the church. And first of all, we must understand the problem. Secondly, we must follow God's solution. And then next week, we'll look at the the third and fourth point, which is we must trust God's reasons. And then the fourth one will be to reject false approaches to church purity. So let's look at the first point. And first, the first point is this. How do members pursue purity in the church? First, understand God's view of the problem that pollutes the church. What we're going to see is that it's individual, but it's also corporate. So it deals with individuals, or in this case, a particular individual in the church, but also deals with how we deal with that individual. Look at verse 1, verse 1 of chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So here's the individual problem, and that is that there was a church member who was unrepentant and continuing in his sin. He was living in open sin. Notice it says in verse 1 that there is sexual immorality among you. That's speaking of the church. Sexual immorality is any type of sexual intimacy or indulgence, sexual indulgence outside of marriage. It comes from the Greek word pornea, which is a general term to describe many types of sexual sins. So it includes adultery, pornography, incest, bestiality, homosexuality, lesbian permissiveness, and the list could go on. You might not, if you're maybe younger in here, you might not understand what we're talking about, but just to make it simple, it's any type of sexual activity that is outside of the covenant relationship of a husband and a wife. Let me illustrate it like this. When we were in Israel, a lot of people would ask us if we were safe. You know, are you doing okay? In fact, I think it's today or yesterday. The time thing always messed me up. But anyways, it was flag day. And so some of our group is still over there, and they actually had to stay in their hotel for two days because there was some danger around. But pretty much, if you stayed in the areas that you were allowed to stay in, and there's sometimes walls and gates that tell you not to go in a certain area, there's military everywhere. They're all carrying you know, AK-47s or whatever it is, you know, and they're, they're ready to, there to protect you. One place we were at, northern Israel, there was a sign that said, danger landmines, you know, <laughs> in the field, so, so don't go out there. So needless to say, we didn't go frolicking in that field. And the point is that there was safe places for us to be, and we enjoyed our time, we learned a lot, and we really didn't have any fear. We were, felt completely at peace. I mean, when someone's guarding you, you know, a bunch of soldiers are around guarding you, and they're there to protect you, you, you feel pretty secure, right? But we could have gone into other areas where there were not soldiers, beyond the walls where we were not supposed to go or in the field where there's landmines. And it might have been a little adventurous and a little exciting, but it have been very dangerous, wouldn't it? And, and, and think of that in regard to marriage. God created marriage as a wonderful, protected place for a man and a woman to enjoy intimacy and love and pleasure. And to go outside of that covenant union is to go outside of God's design and to put yourself in danger. 
And it might feel like fun for a while. It might be a little adventurous. You might feel a little thrill, but you're outside of the bounds of God's design and therefore you are in danger. You're in danger physically of of sexually transmitted diseases. You're in danger emotionally and spiritually and relationally. I mean, sexual indulgence outside of marriage is going to hurt other people. I mean, think about the guy who commits adultery and how he affects his family and his, his wife and all those around him. And it hurts people and it hurts himself. And most importantly, it is a sin against God. And that man, that person who is, is outside of the bounds of marriage is under the judgment of God. And, and that's not a very popular thing to preach, but that's what the Bible teaches. And that's not my opinion. That's what God says. That's what Christ actually said. Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, Jesus taught that God created marriage for a man and a woman, and only in that marital union is a man and a woman to enjoy intimacy and coming together as one. Hebrews 13, 15 says this, the marriage bed is undefiled, it's pure, but God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So God Marriage is God's protected, privileged place for intimacy between a man and a woman. And anything outside of that, God promises that he will judge. And it's not me up here saying, oh, I'm, I know everything. I don't really know anything beyond, about God beyond what the scripture says. And I'm just declaring to you, this is what God says. Thus says the Lord. And again, this is not a popular message in our society. Our world, our world doesn't just condone immorality. It actually promotes it. And even beyond that, it actually demands that we affirm it. Disney is now actively publishing content that normalizes homosexuality and bisexuality with teenagers and preteens. For years, movies and TV shows and pop music has glorified adultery. I mean, how many movies have you watched where there's been a person that leaves their spouse because they fall in love with someone else? It's glorified, casual, hooking up. I mean, we watch, there's some popular shows out there that people watch today from the 1990s, and it's seen as innocent, right? These singles all hooking up with each other, and it's like, well, that was the 90s. It's all good, right? No, it still offends the law of God. Teens, movies are obsessed with the first kiss, Right? I mean, you watch these teen coming-of-age movies. It's the first kiss. It's the first everything. They're obsessed with that. And that's not some type of, of cute little storyline. It's actually terrible. It's actually very destructive for teenagers. Things that should be reserved for marriage are thrown out into the garbage. We should not be surprised that that is how the world is, Right? Because the world follows their own sinful desires. Satan is the ruler over this world. He's influencing this world. For what purpose? What is Satan's purpose in this world? He's creating so much chaos. For what purpose? To destroy. Like he wants people to go to hell. So he wants to confuse them. He wants to infiltrate their thinking. He wants to infect their thinking. He wants to keep them captive. He wants to destroy. Christ wants to restore. 
He wants to reconcile. That's the difference. And so what you see here is you see the world's going that direction. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We, I mean, sometimes we go, oh, can you believe Disney is doing that? No, it is, it's, it's shocking. It's sad. But is it really? It's led by people who don't follow Christ. It's, it's influenced by one who is out for the destruction of souls. And we once lived that way, right? We're not better than anybody else in this world. We had a, had a time where we followed our own sinful desires. We didn't follow God's word. We didn't follow his spirit. We did what we wanted to do. We indulged in our sinful passions. We were influenced by Satan and, and maybe not knowing it, but we followed him as our Lord. We followed our own self and our own desires. But then we, we turned from that. We repented and said, that's sin. That's wrong. That's going the wrong direction. I want to follow Christ. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. Lord, save me. We called upon him. In fact, look down in chapter 6, verse 9. And here you see some of these sins that we're talking about. And he's saying, you in the church, in verse 9, you in the church, you indulged in these you indulged in sexual immorality. That's the word pornea. You, you indulged in some of those sexuality. You were going out and partying and getting drunk. You were stealing from people. I mean, the church was comprised of people who were once like this, right? But there's something that happened. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, by God's grace, well, it speaks about how by God's grace, through faith, they trusted in Christ and they were forgiven. And notice verse 11 you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power or by the spirit of God. And this doesn't mean that as, as a church, as, as Christians, doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. We're going to struggle with sin. But when we desire sin, when we're tempted to sin, and sometimes when we do sin, we call sin what it is. It's sin. It's transgressing God's law. And we see it as vile, as destructive, and we trust Christ is the Savior. He's the one that continues to rescue us, and we look for his spirit for strength to continue to live a pure life. So what's the problem in this church? There was a man who was a member of the church, and he was living in open sin. And, and, and probably at some point he was confronted in it, and if not, at least in his heart, he knew it was wrong, and he was unrepentant. And what was the sin? He was sleeping with his stepmother. Gross, right? I mean, that is terrible. In fact, even it says in verse 1 there that it's not even something the pagans would tolerate. I mean, it was disgusting. It was sinful. It was wrong. But the church's problem, the church's problem was that they were allowing this to take place. Now, I said a church member what do I mean by that? Because we, we throw that term around, and if you look in your Bible, you're not going to find church member anywhere in there. What, what do I mean by church member? Well, it, I'm, I'm meaning a couple things. Number one, I'm meaning it's a person who's a believer in Christ. If you look down in verse 11, here Paul says this guy is a so-called believer. In other words, he professed to be a believer. Of course, he's not repentant, and so his, if he's truly a believer, will be soon found out if he truly repents. But he claimed to be a believer, Second, he's a church member, which means that he at some time officially covenanted with the local church to follow Christ and be held accountable. There was, at some point, this man joined. He, he became a part of the church. He was included on the list. How do you know that? Well, he says, look at verse 1. It says that 
it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And he uses this phrase, among you. In fact, look at verse 2 at the very end. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. The among you identifies him as someone who's a part of this church. He is united together in covenant with them. Among you speaks of a local church of believers that live in this united covenant with God and with each other. We're going to look at this later on to see what this means to remove this unrepentant one. But notice, you're to remove him from among you. What is that talking about? I mean, is it talking about the ushers coming in here and, you know, picking the guy up and throwing him outside? I mean, clearly it's not talking about that. It means he's to be removed from some type of list, some type of commitment, some type of covenant that he's made. And we say, hey, who's on our list? Who are the people that we're in covenant with? Who are the people that we're holding accountable? Oh, this guy, you know, Bob's or Joe or Sam or whatever it is, he's on this list right here. Okay, well, we're to remove him from that because he's living in open sin. That's what it's talking about. 1 Corinthians 5, I think, is one of the clearest texts of Scripture that church membership is biblical, it's necessary, and I don't think a Christian can properly function and grow without being a member because it gives accountability. And the problem with this church was that this man had agreed to follow Christ, had agreed to live in purity before the Lord and in accountability to the church, but instead he was living in sin and he was unrepentant. But I want you to notice that Paul is not rebuking this man. He's actually rebuking the church, which really leads us to the second problem. It's not just a problem with this individual. It is a problem that he was living in sin. But really the church's problem, the corporate problem, was that the church in pride tolerated his sin. Look at verse 2. Verse 2, the scripture says, And you, speaking to the church... So Paul is saying, you, church, this is a, a plural, you are arrogant. Ought you, church, not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul rebuked the church for ignoring this man's sin and operating like he was a brother walking in fellowship with the Lord. The church should have been mourning over his sin, right? That's what it says in verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn? This word mourn denotes a loud cry of anguish, lament for something that's lost or for maybe for someone who passed away. This past week, I was um, at Panera Bread and I was talking to someone in there and I received a text message that a friend of ours in South Carolina had a heart attack and he passed away. And I was not expecting that message, and I received that, and I was talking to this person, and I looked up, and I went, <gasps> you know, it's like that shock of, <gasps> what? And, and there's this shock, and then you have this grief, and then you have this mourning. Why? Because something happened that's not supposed to happen, or at least in our mind, we're not expecting it to happen. You recognize that something terrible has happened, of course, I told this person when it happened, they were like, what happened? And their eyes were really big. And I said, someone, someone just died and passed away. And, and this person, you know, just kind of stared at me, like, you know, couldn't believe it. You know, I, that happened right then. I said, well, I'm a pastor. 
that sometimes does happen. And um, it was a great opportunity to talk to this person. But the point is, is that we mourn when something tragic happens. And anytime there's sin in our life, and anytime we, we know there's sin in someone else's life, our response should be this anguish, should be this mourning, this something terrible has happened. And why? Because sin is rebellion against God, and sin hurts people. Right? Sin is painful. Sin leads a person to hell. And so when we see sin in someone's life, we, we obviously don't rejoice and we don't ignore it. We go, that's terrible. And our hearts are in anguish. And Paul says that the apathy towards someone's sin is prideful. It's arrogance. The word arrogant means literally to puff up, to inflate. Now think about this. How was the, the church puffed up in pride by tolerating this person's sin? What is prideful about ignoring someone's sin, someone that's in the church, ignoring their sin? What's prideful about that? Let me give, me, let me give you a couple of thoughts. First of all, it's prideful to ignore someone's sin because it's disobedience to God. As church members, we are here to help one another. We are here to pray for one another. We are here to encourage one another. Like when we became members, we covenanted to say, we are here for each other. I'm here for you. You're here for me. We want to help you grow in Christ. So when you see someone in sin and someone's doing something, you go, eh, I'm not going to deal with that. You're basically saying to God, God, not my responsibility, even though you committed to that responsibility. The God, not my responsibility, I'll just let that one go. And it's actually pride to think that I'm exempt from what God has called me to do. And second, I think it's pride to ignore someone's sin because it's a selfish approach to life. Like, we know sin hurts, sin destroys. And so when we see it in someone else's life, to be like, ah, no big deal, it's very selfish. In fact, think about it this way. Think about if you saw a, a three-year-old come out of the back and run up here, and they had a big knife in their hand, and they're running at full blast all the way up here, what would you do? Would you, would you try to stop them? I mean, think all of us would say, yes. Why? Because it's the kind, loving thing to do. That, that child might hurt themselves, right? So we're going to take that knife away from them because we don't want them to get hurt, even if that child screams and isn't, isn't very happy about it. We know that that's actually going to harm them. And when a brother or sister at Lighthouse sins, it's arrogant for us to act like it's no big deal. Because we know, even if they're not experiencing at that moment, that the path of the transgressor is hard. Sin is going to bring pain to their life. And third, it's prideful to ignore a brother or sister's sin because we're acting like their sin won't affect us and won't infect the church. See, we have this pride to think, well, you know, they can sin. It's not going to be a problem for me. I mean, I'm, I'm strong enough as a believer, right? I don't, I, their sin's not going to affect me. Was that true? Their sin won't affect the church. It's not a big deal. I mean, you know, it's kind of like their problem, right? It's not my problem. It won't affect the church. Is that true? Well, the answer is that's wrong. God disagrees. In fact, look at verse 6. Verse 6, we're going to look at this more next week, but just to kind of highlight this. He says, your boasting, your pride is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little sin, leavens the whole lump? That's the church right there. 
To, to think you can allow sin in your life and it won't affect you, you're ignorant, you're prideful, and you're going to fall. To think that we can ignore sin in the church and it won't affect us, we are ignorant, we are arrogant, and we are in danger. It's kind of like going to the doctor and, and hearing that you have a spot on your liver and it's cancer, and you're going, well, just one spot. What's the big deal? Is it really going to hurt me that much? Uh, yeah, actually, it probably could. And you need to take care of it. Otherwise, it might spread. It will affect you. Now, I don't think this means, I don't know this doesn't mean, that we go around and point out everybody's faults. We all have faults. I've been with you for four years, and the longer you're with me, the more you figure out my faults, right? Pastor Roger, been here for many years. I'm sure you figured out some of his faults. Like, we all have faults. We could all go around and be like, here's his faults and her faults and all that, right? This is not like open season on let's just figure out everybody's faults, let's list them and present them to people, right? This is, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. This is talking about someone living in open sin, unrepentant, we love them enough to take our own sin and their sin serious. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, you who are, are submitting to the Holy Spirit, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So how do members pursue purity in the church? Well, we, we must understand the problem. So let me, let me talk to us individually. Let me, let me talk to you to you like I'm just talking to you individually. Are you, are you involved in a sin that is unconfessed? Do you need to confess a sin to God? Or, or maybe after you confess that sin to God, do you need to confess a sin to your spouse? Or, or maybe to a parent? Maybe to another person in your life? Are you involved in a sin, continuing in that sin, unrepentant of that sin? Maybe a sin like internet pornography. Maybe you have some type of, some type of emotional affair with someone at work. It's not physical, but you definitely have something for them. Or maybe you're taking prescription drugs and you can't stop. Or maybe you're cheating your employer out of his or her time and you need to confess that as sin. And I guess my point is here, individually, we need to think about are there sins that we are continuing in in our life that we need to repent and turn from, confess them as sin? And you might excuse it and say, well, just a, just a momentary fleeing or, or just one time or just been a couple times or I can walk away at any moment. Well, you're wrong. You're playing with hellfire. So we need to repent and turn from that sin. And then church, I think we should all talk as a corporate body and ask, are we committed to the spiritual health of our church? I mean, are we committed when there's someone that has a sin and we, we know about it, are we committed to helping them with that? If it means even gently confronting them, gently confronting them. But even beyond that, are we committed to praying for each other? Are we committed to loving each other? Are we like, I want to disciple that person. I need someone to disciple me. I want to grow with our church. That's what we're committing to here. There's no such thing as a loner Christian at Lighthouse. There, there might be some loner Christians, don't get me wrong, but there should be no such thing as a loner Christian. I need you. 
You need me. We need each other. We can't do this Christian life on our own. So are we we committed to the spiritual health of each other? Then second, how do members pursue purity in the church, follow God's solution that purifies the church? And so first, let's go back to the individual. What should the individuals do? If I ask that question about repentance or something you need to confess, what should you do? What's the answer to that? Well, the answer for you is the same answer for every person, and that is to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're without Christ, if you're under the power of your own sinful desires and Satan, and you're you're not following and believing in Jesus Christ, then God's call to you is to turn from your way of living, from what you believe, and to believe in Jesus Christ, to give your life to him and say, my life is not my own. I'm a sinful person, so Jesus Christ, save me. That's the gospel. And the gospel is necessary. It's the remedy for every person who's without Christ. But do you realize, church, that it's still the remedy for us? We must continue to repent. We must continue to turn from our own ideas, our own sinful desires, and trust and believe in Jesus. I mean, faith in the New Testament is not a one-time thing. It's a continual thing. It's a present tense. It never stops. We keep believing in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. That's the solution. In fact, let me give you a little spoiler alert. This man here who is sinning in the church this man ended up repenting in the future. In fact, 2 Corinthians was written for that reason. Eventually, the church did remove him from membership and from fellowship. The man experienced the pain of that, and he came back, repented of his sin, and continued to follow Christ. 2 Corinthians was written to encourage the church to forgive him, to to receive him back into the membership. So what about our church? What about corporately? What's the solution for us? What's the solution for a person? Or what's the solution for the church when a person doesn't repent, but they continue in their sin? They maybe snub snub their noses at us and say, well, I can do what I want to do. You can't bother me. What's the church solution? Well, we must remove the unrepentant member from membership and from fellowship. Look at verse 2. This is often called church discipline or or excommunication. Verse 2, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this, this unrepentant one, be removed from among you. So, So Paul instructed the church to present this man's sin to the church and to remove him from membership. And notice the context where that's supposed to happen. Verse 3, For though absent in body, so Paul's talking about himself, I'm not there right now. Though I'm not there present in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, as if I'm actually physically there, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So I've already seen what, I've already heard what he's done. I've judged him as guilty of that sin because it's clearly happening. Verse 4 When you are assembled, this is the gathering of God's people, the local church, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, 
with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does it mean in verse 2 to remove this man from among you? Well, it means, first of all, that there's some type of church assembly, some type of gathering, and this man is publicly declared as one who is continuing in sin and is unrepentant. You can see that in verse 4. When you are assembled, so this happens in the assembly of God's people and when the members assemble, it means that the church was to declare that this man was unrepentant, that he was acting like and living as an unbeliever. Look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan. Now, we're going to talk about what this means next week, so I'm not going to get into great detail about it because it really helps us understand point number three. But Satan is the spiritual leader of the world. And this man was willfully living under the power of Satan. And so the church was to respond to his choice to continue in the sin and officially and publicly hand him over to Satan. And what does Satan do to the souls of people who hand themselves over to him? He destroys them. And so that's what's happening in this text. He's saying, officially declare this man is living under the power of Satan. And so we give him over to Satan. So to remove someone from membership because of their sin and because of being unrepentant is to declare that this person is now living like an unbeliever. So this is serious. We're declaring this person is no longer a follower of Christ. Matthew 18 speaks more about this. Verse 17, if you want to look it up at some point, you can. This talks about an unrepentant church member and the church comes together and he refuses to listen to the church. In other words, he refuses to repent. The Bible says, Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you, that's the church, as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, tax collector was the worst person of society. They were the ones, they were the IRS of that time, right? They were the ones collecting money for Rome. What does it mean to remove this man from among you? It also means we cut off fellowship with that person. Now, this is the one where people go, what? Look at verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So someone who says, I'm a Christian, do not associate with that person if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler. In other words, he's listing sins that someone might be in a habit of continuing in and unrepentant in. Not even to eat with such a one. Now again, next week we're going to talk more about what that means. But what it's saying here in general is if someone claims to be a believer and continues to walk in sin, we are commanded not to fellowship with that person or even eat with them. Now, if I was writing the Bible, I might not write that there. But God didn't write the Bible, praise God, right? The Holy Spirit did. And that's what he wrote. That's what he says. And what's the purpose of that? Why would you not even fellowship? Why would you not even eat with that person? It's because the purpose of removing that person is to show him how serious 
sin is, and he's to experience the pain of separation, right? Death is separation. It's ultimate separation. Separation from God, separation from those loved ones on earth. And so sin causes separation. So what you're doing with this person is you're having him experience the pain of separation, separation from fellowship in the church. And in the end, we hope that he or she will experience the pain of their sin, and they will say, I hate separation. Sin is destructive. I want to come back to Christ, and they will repent. In fact, notice that in verse 5. That's the whole purpose. Verse 5 says, we do this, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When Christ comes back, he will stand with us as one who is redeemed. Now, this is the point when people will say or think, this isn't very loving to do, is it? I mean, it's like shunning them. What's up with that? There's movies made about that out there, right? But actually, I would say that this is the opposite. It's actually unloving to ignore sin. It's actually unloving to normalize unrepentance. And let me say, church, that's unfortunately what many Christians and many churches do. They normalize unrepentance. The truth is, the world is unrepentant, right? That is normal. That's normal. A Christian that is unrepentant, that is not normal. And we should never normalize it. We should never treat it as like, oh, okay, yeah, that person lives in sin because they're an unbeliever. That person says they're a believer and they live the same way, but whatever, it's up to them. No, actually, it's not. And so as a church, we don't normalize a believer that lives in unrepentance, John MacArthur says this, discipline is not inconsistent with love. It's a lack of discipline, in fact, that is inconsistent with love. The Lord disciplines his children because he loves them, and we will discipline our brothers and sisters in the Lord if we truly love him and truly love them. If you're a parent or if you're a grandparent, you were a parent at one time, you had a little toddler. If you love that toddler, you will bring loving pain. You know what I mean by that? Loving pain, not out of control, not wild, not, not your wrath poured out upon that kid. But you'll bring loving pain to that toddler when he does something wrong. And why would a parent bring loving pain to a little child like that? I mean, this cute little innocent child, well, if you have... Parent, if you're a parent and you have children, you're probably not thinking that all the time, right? But why would you bring pain to a little child like that? Because you want that child to recognize that sin is painful. That actually there are, there are consequences for foolish choices. And if you're a Christian parent, you want them to experience the pain of sin because you want them to trust in the Savior, one of the greatest problems, I think, in parenting, and if you're a parent here, especially if you have a baby or a toddler, that's really the most, that those first like five to six years are probably one of those crucial times for them to experience the pain of their sin. If you have young ones in here, listen to this. One of the greatest problems in parenting in America is that parents think it's unloving to discipline their children. But friends, listen to this. There's no such thing as grace if there's not law. And if your kids don't understand the pain of the law, they're never going to understand the, the joy of grace. No wonder we have kids shooting up schools. 
and rampant narcissism in the youth culture. We have a culture full of kids who don't know there's consequences for their choices. And it's because parents haven't taught them there's consequences for their choices. Many of them haven't. And actually, parents who love their children, discipline them as at a young age to teach them that foolish living is painful. And for the church, we discipline, we remove members, and stop fellowship with brothers and sisters who live in sin so they will experience the pain of their sin and return to the Lord. What Paul taught here, what Paul taught here is ignored, and frankly, it's disobeyed in, disobeyed in many churches. If you were to take this sermon and preach it in the average church in America, do you realize that that pastor would be run out of that church that week? And you might think, well, is that really true? I'm, I promise you, I could list for you churches that, that have chosen not to follow God's instructions here because they're afraid. They're afraid they might lose money. They're afraid they might lose their church. They're afraid they might lose that friendship. Let me give you some examples. I've heard, here's two that I've heard in the past couple months and then one that happened to a family member. One church had a youth pastor who committed adultery, but the youth pastor was very well liked. When the senior pastor found out about it, he went to the deacons and the deacons, because this guy was so well-liked, and this guy said he was sorry, you know, I'm sorry for that, the, the, the senior pastor said, well, this guy's got to confess it to the church, and he needs to step down from his ministry position. And the deacon said, no, 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 this guy's too well-liked. We want to keep him. And they said, pastor, if that's what you want to do, then you need to resign. And so that next week, that pastor resigned. Another situation had an influential deacon in the church who defrauded someone in the community, but the church ignored the problem because this man was a big giver. If you discipline this man out of the church, that's going to be a big chunk of our giving. So maybe we just kind of keep him there and just be quiet about it, and that's what they chose to do. I have a family member who was hired by a church. When he got there, he found out that two major leaders in the church had swapped wives. He didn't know it going into this ministry. However, they retained their ministry positions. And so this family member called these men to step down to confess this to the church. But the church would not put pressure on these men to do that because one of the men was a union boss and he employed half the town. He was too important. And so my family member had to resign and do the right thing and upend their entire life. And church, what is more important? What is the most important in our church? Is it, is it the numbers that we get for finances? No. Is it the numbers we get in here? No. Is it keeping the popular people or, or the, the liked pastors or deacons or whatever it is? No. Is it the purity of the church? The answer is yes. The Bible teaches that it's the church's purity that glorifies God I would rather pastor a church of 40 or 50 people who are living in humility before the Lord, following the Lord by faith, being committed to purity in the church, and barely making it. Then pastor a church of 500 that's flush with money. There's gossiping in the church. There's immorality in the church. But hey, it looks good on the outside. I mean, if you look at a church that's like that, that, you know, that's, it's flashy, they're, they're flush with money, People would call that successful. Oh, look at that church. And then you see this dinky little church over here. This guy's preaching. They're barely hanging on. They say, oh, not very successful. But I'm going to tell you that the church that's successful in that situation is the one that's obeying Christ. 
and we want to be a church that's like that. I really do appreciate our elders because they are committed to obeying Christ and the Scripture no matter the cost. They, we are not perfect, but that definitely is a heart, I think, of this church. So we must pursue purity because Christ died to purify his church. So how do we, as members, pursue purity or follow God's solution that purifies the church? Let me talk to us again individually. Are you, are you living a repentant life? Would, would you say that maybe you have one foot in the world, one foot in the domain of Satan, and one foot in the church? Are you loving and enjoying a pure and holy relationship with Christ? Are you, are you trusting that Jesus is your sacrifice? He was the sacrifice for sins on your behalf. He is the only means to forgive you and cleanse you. And, and friend, if you're in here and you're without Christ, he offers to you the greatest gift, and that is grace. By faith, all you have to do is trust in his work, and you can be saved. The Philippian guard asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? He didn't say, go get baptized. He didn't say, try to be a better person. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's a promise from God. That means he will forgive you, he will cleanse you, he makes you his child, he gives you eternal life. You are eternally saved. And then church, let's talk as a corporate body. Are we committed to pursuing purity in the church no matter the cost? And that's a hard one, isn't it? Because maybe you're a person in here and you know there's something that you need to bring forward to a spouse or to a parent and you don't want to do it because you know it's embarrassing. And so you say, yeah, no matter the cost, except for that one right there, that's going to cost me. Are you willing to pursue purity no matter the cost? To do the right thing? Maybe there's someone you need to talk to. Maybe there's someone else in the church that you need to go to. God prioritizes purity. Christ came to make his church a holy and pure church. Are we committed to pursuing purity as a church? Would you bow with me in prayer?